This episode is sponsored by our brand new book, The Snake and Mine Nicotine. I've co-written this book with author of Alcohol Explained, William Porter, and I combined our trusted approaches for controlling alcohol and bringing the same science-backed, grace-led methods for all those who are ready to change their relationship with nicotine, vaping, smoking, chewing, whatever it is. We uncovered the subconscious beliefs about smoking and vaping that keep us stuck in the same cycle. We ask thought-provoking questions and share exercises that spark clarity in your journey to kick the habit without willpower, without pain, without feeling like you're missing out in an easier way that maybe you ever thought it was possible. So if you're ready to start healing your mind and body from the effects of smoking, you can pre-order your copy today at thisnakedmindnicotine.com. This is Annie Grace and welcome to This Naked Mind Podcast. And I am so excited today because I have with me Dr. Kelly McGonigal, whose work I have been a big fan of for years. So thank you so much, Kelly, for joining me. It's just Thanks awesome. for having me. It's just very, very cool. So I have to tell you that this book, The Upside of Stress, this was the first book I read after I wrote my book. And you know how you kind of take a hiatus from reading while you're writing. Yeah, because um, you don't want to be too influenced or too overwhelmed. I was getting that stage with like, oh my gosh, every other book is so brilliant. Why am I even bothering? Yes. I don't know if you have that yes. voice in your head. <laughs> totally. You're like, what is even the point? <laughs> totally, totally. Um, but this book, I don't know why I picked it up first, but it was just, it just really caught my eye about, you know, obviously my work is about people um, who want to drink less or drink nothing. And one of the main reasons people like number one, I'd say that people give for drinking is to relieve stress. And so I was like, yes. what is the upside of stress? And you introduced me to this idea of a mindset shift. And I would love to start there. And then, you know, we can back up into your story and everything else, but like, what is a mindset shift and why is it so important? So a mindset is basically a, a belief that you hold or a perspective that you choose to take that really influences how you experience life. So it's not something as simple as I believe that cats are better than dogs, but it's something like, I believe that stress is fundamentally harmful. And therefore, if I want to be healthy and happy, I need to avoid stress. And um, psychological research has shown that there are a few core beliefs, like how you think about stress that radically affect your health and your happiness and your relationships, because they influence how you interact with, you know, every challenge that you experience with all of your emotions, with your relationships and with your goals. So a mindset reset or a mindset shift is really about figuring out, um, what's the best way to think about in the case of stress, what's the best way to think about stress when I'm confronted with the reality that life is stressful. Right. So if we acknowledge that, that, so first of all, the, like, the actual first mindset reset you need to make is to abandon the fantasy that there's some version of your life out there that if you just did it right, would be stress-free. So oh. actually even like to get, you know, we're, we've been so convinced that stress is a sign that there's something wrong. And that uh, if you were just smart enough, worked hard enough, bought the right stuff, prayed hard enough, whatever it is that you could go through life experiencing growth and love and wonder and meaning, and yet somehow miraculously not experience any stress related to that. So the first big mindset reset that I came to as somebody also who trained as a psychologist um, and within health psychology and medicine, that stress is always the enemy. Um, I had to come to realize that stress is essentially a signal that, that it's a moment that matters mm -hmm. or that something that you care about is at stake. And when you actually look at the science, you know, humans experience stress many times a day, every day, 
It's in the, sometimes of the little flutter of your heart, when you recognize that you care about someone or something, that's a stress response. When someone that you care about is upset and you feel that twist of compassion, that's actually physically a stress response that makes you want to go and take care of them. When um, you're feeling uncertain or anxious because you're, you, you want something to happen, but you can't entirely control it, that worrying, that's a stress response. We have all these different types of stress responses, but basically they're changes in your brain and your body that are trying to get your attention and then also prepare you to meet this moment, either by acting, by reaching out for help, by helping someone else, by slowing down and reflecting on what matters. Um, and so, so stress is basically inescapable when you have a life that involves meaningful goals, meaningful mm -hmm. relationships, a physical body, you know, and, and all, not to mention all of the other stuff that is like, the, you know, uncontrollable stress, like a pandemic and all of that. So from that mindset shift, when you realize stress is going to happen mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily a toxic state that is uh, the, the only purpose for it is to destroy your immune cells and turn you into the worst version of yourself. But actually that when you feel that stress, there's something worth paying attention to. And you have this whole repertoire of stress responses that could help you deal with whatever the source of stress is. It's not just fight or flight uh, and it's not just um, escaping, right? The, you know, you had mentioned one of the things that people, one of the reasons people drink is to escape stress. Mm -hmm. That of course is a coping strategy, but we also have these um, stress responses like a challenge response that helps us take action, be brave, pursue meaningful goals, even when it's hard, even when we're tired. You know, we have this instinct to reach out to others, to ask for help, to find other people who are in the same situation as us. We have the instinct to reflect, to make meaning out of struggles that we can't control. We have all sorts of useful coping strategies. And when you recognize that stress is a signal, trying to get your attention and help you figure out which of these strategies are most suitable for you, you know, what resources do you have? What does the situation call for? that allows us to spend less time looking to just escape our feelings, whether by drinking or some other maybe self-destructive habit or even just you know procrastination or distraction, but we actually turn our attention to what matters most in this moment, then stress actually can become a catalyst for all the things that we do care about, like growth and strengthening relationships and making important changes in our lives and in the world. Oh gosh, I love that so much. And like, even just the first words, like stress is going to happen. Like the, the amount of relief in the acceptance that life is not stress-free is significant. Just I have to that. say, I mean, so this is, this is not really that much of a revelation. And yet for a lot of people, it, this is when I um, first published that book that was 2015, I got a lot of pushback, even from psychologists who were saying things like, this book is dangerous because you're telling people it is okay to have a stressful life. And that's wrong. It's not okay because stress is harmful. Therefore, it is not okay if your life is stressful. And I was thinking, have you spent time talking to human beings? <laughs> like, life is stressful. Have you ever met anyone who's grieving, who's going through a divorce, who's going through a health crisis, who lost their job? Have you ever met human beings? Life is stressful. And it actually, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this book and why I decided to take this stance towards stress, even though, like if you ask me to, to analyze every single study that has ever been published on stress, 
I can absolutely give you a big old pile of stress is bad for you. And also a very interesting pile of how stress can be harnessed and, mm-hmm. and what our, our stress strengths are. So there's lots of evidence, including evidence that stress can lead to things we don't want. But I, I took this stance because of the effect that focusing on the, the harmful side of stress has on people's ability to engage with life, to feel adequate to the challenges in their lives, to feel, to find both the courage and the vulnerability to be honest about their stress with other people, right? So to leave behind that idea that if I'm stressed, it's because I am, I'm not up to this role or I'm not the right kind of parent. Like I can't tell people I'm stressed because I shouldn't be stressed. Therefore, you know, all that other stuff. So I decided to take the stance because even though it is obviously true that stress along with other, you know, any form of pain or suffering, you don't always want more of it. It's not always um, helpful, but because you can't avoid it, what's the best way to think about it that allows us to engage with it and to, to harness all the human strengths that, that allow us to continue to find health, joy, connection, purpose, um, even when life is difficult. And so it was during the pandemic when suddenly a lot of people were like, oh yeah, I don't, haven't found the right way to avoid this stress yet. And then, right. unless of course it was ways that weren't healthy or right. it was in ways that are, are similar to, to what I talk about which is actually a form of a stress response, like finding a way to help others. You know, there's research that people whose initial reaction to the pandemic was to look for ways to help others uh, were better off psychologically and physically than people who didn't have that coping strategy. So one of the reasons I like to talk about these stress mindset shifts is when you recognize that one of the ways that stress tries to help you is by increasing your motivation to connect, Mm. even increase the warm glow that you get when you help others, because that is a coping strategy that actually supports you, that strengthens your social networks, that gives you a sense of meaning and joy, that, um, that stress actually will drive you in that direction. When you know that, you're more likely to listen to that signal and, and look for ways to reach out or look for ways to help out. Um, so it's like being self- selflessly selfish in a way. Yeah, or yeah, selfishly selfless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of uh, words that use the word self, but I actually think we could even get rid of the word self, like self-care or self-compassion because it's always bigger than us. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we are always living in a moment that is bigger than us. And the only thing that we, we really have influence over is us. And so we must take care of ourselves in order to engage with life and help others. And we must have compassion for ourselves in order to understand what compassion is so that we can forgive others or support others. But it's not, it's not this um, zero sum game where it's right. for me and not for you. It's that if we don't have access to those resources, we, we lose our vitality and our ability to, to be that in the world for others as well. It's like literally the foundation to the ability to give is yeah. by being, you know, able to, that's so, that's so great. Um, one of the things that you said that I think is just so interesting in your work is, is you bring up this seemingly, again, it seemingly obvious point, but this idea that, okay, forget what, you know, maybe we can prove this all right. Maybe we can prove this all wrong. Obviously science can go both ways when you want it, but what is the reality of how you think about this? How does it affect your life, right? Like, is it going to affect your life in a better way to think that stress is toxic and spend all your time avoiding it? 
Or is it going to affect your life in a better way to realize that stress can be resourceful? Yeah. And And this is what's so great about this is you can treat it like an experiment. So nobody has to take my word for it. Although you're, you know, you're welcome to do it like a real experiment. And sometimes when I used to teach this class at Stanford, I would bring in things like a blood pressure monitor and we can actually do experiments. Like what happens when you think this, what happens when you think that? Um, in terms of your stress physiology, but you know, you can have your own direct experience with this. So for example, I'm someone, I was born with a tendency towards anxiety. It's like my default response to everything. And even like to nothing, you know, wake up, where's my mind and body go? Oh, let's experience anxiety. And so um, I have a very strong like instinct to not want to believe a lot of this stuff because you know, when you experience a lot of anxiety, it does feel overwhelming. It does get in the way. It feels like you're going to have a heart attack. It's just so easy to believe that it's always harmful and it's always making it impossible for you to be your best self or to connect with other people or to even enjoy life. And so I had to treat it like an experiment. What happens if the next time I'm feeling my heart pound from anxiety, what would happen if I say to myself, this thing that I've read in scientific papers, which appears to be true, that physiologically, there's very little difference in a cardiovascular response to anxiety and excitement. Mm. What would happen if in that moment, I just say to myself, oh, my heart is in it. It's not a lie. I'm not saying, like, there's actually studies saying you should tell yourself you're excited. I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure I would actually describe this as excited, but let's just find the language that feels right to me. My heart is in it. That feels true. And is there like a shift that happens where I suddenly feel more willing to Mm. do something that makes me anxious, but I care about like having a a conversation with a family member or giving a talk. Um, And so, you know, I know in my own direct experience, what happens is it doesn't radically calm me down. Instead, it's like it channels the energy and gives me the, the amount of courage and willingness that I need to then go use the energy that is part of anxiety so that, that I can uh, approach rather than avoid. And there's, there's all sorts of, you know, mindset resets like that, but basically it's that it can change your biology. It can change how you think and feel, but most importantly, it changes how you act. And so, you know, in the course of this conversation, if we talk about mindsets, like, like that one that you can choose to embrace even the seemingly really unhelpful energy of anxiety that you can embrace that as energy or as a signal that you care, as opposed to a sign that you're falling apart. Um, Notice even what's great about it is you can just consider it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not like you have to convince yourself of it. Uh, And maybe there's something you can do that supports that mindset. Like I'm a really big believer in having theme songs that that are like um, emotion regulatory. So I have songs that help me connect to courage or songs that help me connect to joy or gratitude. Oh, and if there's a mindset that you want, you know, you think about it, bring it to mind. Um, and then you maybe play a song and it, for other people, it might not be music. For me, music is very powerful. And also it's really easy to access, even in situations where maybe you don't want people to know that you're giving yourself a mindset <laughs> intervention, like, yeah. like listen to a couple bars and, you know, sing along in your head. Um, but that could be for other people might be reading something or looking at pictures on your phone of like someone you care about. Like maybe you think about how you want to be this way for your kids. And you've got that picture that just reminds you of that. Mm. You know, there are these little things you can do because again, these mindset resets, they're not about, is it true or not true? It's that if in a moment of stress, if you think about your values, Mm. right, does that do anything for you? Well, the research says it should. If you, in a moment of stress, you think, like, what do I want to bring to every situation that's difficult? 
And for me, it might be something like, um, like empathy, enthusiasm, courage. Those are some of my values. Um, and I just think about that research suggests it balances your stress hormones in a way that, that gives you a little bit more courage and helps you connect with others. It shifts you into a state that's healthier for your heart and your immune system. It's interesting, but also you'll know it because if you think about your values in a moment, that's stressful, you'll probably have a, a better experience in that moment. Mm -hmm. You'll be more likely to do something or say something that later on you'll be grateful to yourself for. Oh, I love that so much. I got chills when you said my heart is in it because, you know, even with, you've heard that, like I've heard that piece of research and I probably from your book and I've told my son who's going to play baseball and he's stressed about getting hit by the pitcher. And I'm like, but it's excitement. And he's just like, it's falling so flat for him because it is so hard. Like I call it too high up the ladder. You're trying to jump yeah. from this rung of like, I'm freaked out to I'm excited. And then, but that, you know, my heart is in this, like, yeah, he cares. He cares about his. Yeah, I always thought it was so funny. You know, that there is that one study, people don't know what we're talking about. The study that you take people who are anxious and you tell them to tell themselves they're excited. It helps them. And I, when I saw that, I was like, that is, they must not have been that anxious. <laughs> right. Yeah, that wasn't panic attack level anxiety. But that's, you know, what's great about this is, again, I take these ideas from research. I consider them. I think about how they fit with my experience. I talk to other people, figure out what fits with their experiences. And you can find your own way into it as, you know, if you stay open to the premise that, that actually, uh, you know, I said this a couple of times, I think already in this conversation, but one of the most important things, messages that I've ever received from a teacher who was important to me is this idea. It's really important to see other people as adequate to the challenges in their lives. Mm. And I realized at some point, oh, I got to do that for myself too. Mm. Like that it's as a basic matter of respect and compassion, even when you're helping someone who's struggling with something like grief or something like depression or a you know, major life change crisis, even as you help them, you must view them as essentially adequate to this moment because uh, of, of their human nature and because it serves them to see them as adequate to this moment, even as you help them. Like that is the perspective to take. I mean, I've gotten lots of great advice like that when I was training to help parents who had lost a child. I'll never forget it. The, the, um, the facilitator said, if you don't believe that it is possible to make meaning out of the absolute worst pain you can experience, you should stay away from these parents. You have to believe at some level that's possible because whether or not you know how, and you certainly don't need to tell them to do it, but you have to believe it's possible mm -hmm. or you shouldn't even be in this space. And I heard something similar when I was training to work with people who had um, terminal cancer, that you have to, in that moment, believe when you are with them, you have to believe in something like hope mm -hmm. doesn't mean you think that their cancer is going to be cured, but you have to bring to that space, something like hope, even if it's just for this moment of connection, or again, you should, you should leave the room. And I feel like that's sort of what, what I'm, what I'm trying to do with, with these mindset shifts is there's just some essential things, uh, their, their beliefs, their attitudes, their values, that if you, if you can choose them in moments that are difficult, they, they allow us to access what is good in us and they allow the people around us to access what is good in them as well. Oh, I love that so much. And I think it's, it's so incredibly powerful. The two things I want to follow up on from that, from that whole thing is, first of all, you said, and I, 
I, I know, I think I know the answer to this because I've, I've read your work, like both of these books are, they're so earmarked and dog-eared, but um, I, I'm a writer in my book. So they're like, <laughs> like, here's a page for you, right? <laughs> but the, you said that mindset shifts can change your biology. So can you give us an example of that? Yeah. So, um, so one of the examples related to what we've already talked about is um, when you're feeling stressed, if you make a choice to accept the stress and to view it as energy rather than a toxic state that needs to be suppressed, um, one of the changes that is common is that your physiology shifts from what we would call fight or flight, which is, uh, it, has, it has some elements to it that are the like the essence of toxic chronic stress, like uh, systemic inflammation or a ratio of stress hormones that's kind of heavy on the cortisol mm -hmm. and lighter on some other stress hormones that really support resilience and recovery. So that would be like a, a typical unhealthy stress response when it's really chronic. And when you embrace stress as energy you can harness and you stop thinking, I have to calm down, I have to calm down you actually shift into a challenge response, which is very similar to fight or flight in that it gives you a lot of energy, but your blood vessels stay more relaxed or your blood pressure doesn't spike. You have less inflammation throughout your body. You have this interesting balance of stress hormones, including stress hormones like DHEA that support recovery and resilience um, compared to cortisol. And it's just, it's a healthier state for your mind and body, even if that stress is chronic. And again, there are a number of studies showing that like, I'm not talking about therapy. I'm talking about an experimenter walking in and saying, guess what? I know you think stress is bad for you. And sometimes it is, but also stress can give you energy. And when you're feeling your heart pound or you're sweating, or you're breathing faster, um, you should remind yourself that your stress could actually help you, particularly if what you want to do is like to be your best, do your best. Like that changes people's physiology. And that's just one example. Another example, I mentioned the values um, affirmation. Uh, kind of mindset reset, which is when you're stressed out, if you think about what matters most to you. And you can do that in a couple of ways. So I gave you the example where I think about what I want to bring to a moment. And people will often say things like nouns or adjectives. I want to bring my, my sense of humor. I want to bring my absolute integrity. I want to bring a kindness, right? But you could also think about who matters most to you. So maybe it's a relationship. It could be a role that's really important to you, like who I am, in this professional context or in this family, like what really matters to me is trying to be my best in that role. That when people do that, or it could even be an activity that brings you meaning or joy. I'll often think about how much I love teaching and that, that it's sort of like my best self. When I'm my best as a teacher, I feel really connected to my purpose. And so I'll just even just remind myself of that. Again, that this can very quickly change what's happening in your body and your brain in ways that allow you to engage with other people and engage with challenges. And then I'll give you one other example. Um, there's uh, something called a compassionate reappraisal uh, or a positive reappraisal mindset reset for things that have already happened and they are still really upsetting. You know, maybe somebody said something to you that hurt your feelings or you had conflict at work and it just didn't end well but also it's over, but it's still like, you know how these things linger with you. You're mm -hmm. still disappointed about something you wanted and you didn't get. Um, there are these, these, pa these pains that we carry with us. And so there's research looking at what happens if you ask people to think about that. 
and to either, if it was interpersonal, like let's say that you did something a while ago that really hurt me and, uh, and harmed our relationship, could I take a point of view of trying to think about you as a human being who acts from a desire to be happy, to avoid suffering, and that how that unfolded, that part of that is you were doing what you thought you needed to do from a, a genuine place of just a being human, mm. not trying to harm. And can I wish the best for you, right? Can I, can I hope that in your life, you experience the things that you need to in order to be happy and free from suffering and not cause harm, that kind of compassionate reappraisal. Or if it's not that, if it's something like I just, uh, I lost out on something I wanted and nobody that I'm blaming, uh, that I can think about the benefits I might've experienced as a result of going through that. What have I learned about myself? Um, what have I learned about what really matters to me? Um, has it given me a motivation to do something else? Uh, that that kind of benefit seeking, both of those can allow you to reflect on this past stress without the usual negative side effects on things like your heart and your immune system. So people will be reflecting on these things, but instead of saying that they're angry or sad or ashamed, they report emotions like gratitude or forgiveness uh, or hope. And their cardiovascular system shifts into the state that reflects resilience. I won't get too technical, but it has to do with your heart rate variability increasing and your heart synchronizing with your breath in a way that's really great for your, your nervous system and your whole body. Um, and you, you just see these changes unfold that suggest it's possible to think about things in our past that are harmful and hurtful without that being a, a, a toxic moment, which again is something mm. that like so many people feel and fear that even stress that they are beyond, that even just thinking about it, even just remembering, acknowledging that suffering is like a moment of toxicity for us. And so, you know, it's another interesting, um, it's like a stance you have to choose to take and you can't, as a, like, I couldn't tell you to do it. If I tell you to do it, it's probably going to trigger resentment. It's going right. to trigger like, you're telling me to find a benefit for this thing. You are like, are, are you cruel? Are you crazy? Um, it's something we have to do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, it's the challenge of these stress mindsets because you really have to take a stance about how you want to choose to engage with the difficulties of life. Yeah, I think that's what, like all throughout all of that, I'm like, all of this takes conscious choice. Like it takes taking a moment to say, what is going to be my response instead of just yeah. like happening into Which it. Which is really different than what can I do right now to feel better immediately? Sometimes those coping strategies are healthy and helpful. And a lot of times they aren't. Like it depends on whether it's your only coping strategy Yeah, to, to just try to distract yourself or feel better right now. Well, that could be a good segue into alcohol because in yes. my story, I for sure found that alcohol, while it didn't start as my only coping strategy, in fact, I didn't even really drink much in high school and in college. And it wasn't until I got into the corporate world in New York City that I started to, it became my only coping strategy. Yes. You know, so I told you um, before this conversation, so I don't drink alcohol anymore. And um, there are a couple of reasons for it, but I think it's really useful. So uh, I think you, you, you held up my willpower book, right? Yeah. So I often thinking about um, helping people make changes in their lives. You know, I define willpower as the ability to make choices that are consistent with your goals and your values, even when it's hard mm. or some part of you wants to do something different, different. So I feel like this is a really good 
alcohol is a really good example for that because I don't have moral judgments around it. It's not like it's always good willpower when you don't drink and bad willpower when you drink. Right. It depends. What's, what's your relationship? What, what role is it playing in your life? It's like with anything, with food, with relationships, with the way you spend your time, what you put your attention on, all these things that we try to regulate, you, you know, you have to pay attention to the, how it connects to your goals and your values and your well-being. So how that played out for me with alcohol is, you know, I, I didn't start drinking until I was in my twenties. I'd never like touched alcohol. I have a, a history of alcoholism in my family. I had been properly scared away, but then, you know, nightclubs and stuff, you start to get exposed to it. I started to get exposed to it. And what I found in my early twenties is, isn't this interesting? Alcohol does two things for me that I really like. It takes the edge off my anxiety. Hmm. Mm. And also it makes it more fun to spend time with people I don't actually like. It makes me feel connected to people who I would not feel connected to otherwise. And over the next few years through my twenties, um, even though I wasn't, I wasn't really using alcohol in ways that run unhealthy, like on a day-to-day basis, I became very aware that for my mental health in particular, I needed to not look for ways to take the edge off my anxiety. Mm. But that was a bad goal and a bad coping strategy for me because I was avoiding a lot of things that were triggering anxiety. And I had a story in my head that I didn't want to feel anxious Mm. And that that anxiety meant I shouldn't do something, whether it's get on an airplane or have a conversation or whatever. Like I just, I use that anxiety as a sign to avoid things that mattered. And every now and then in certain contexts, alcohol would be an opportunity to take that edge off a little bit. I just got very clear before it became a problem that this was not going to be good for me because that's the way in my family, alcoholism lies right? So that was part of it. And the other part is I realized that um, I didn't need alcohol to really enjoy connecting with people that I had things in common with or that I actually liked. Yeah. And I thought like it really didn't do anything in those circumstances. And at a certain point, uh, it just, it felt like I was doing something inconsistent with my values when I drank, but it was particularly that anxiety one. I, I saw so many people in my life, not just with alcohol, but with anti-anxiety medications and um, uh, drugs that basically make you unconscious to what's happening in life. I saw that a lot in my circle and in my family. And I knew that anything I did that moved me in the direction of being willing to take a pill to make my anxiety go away, I did not wanna be practicing that, that I knew exactly where that would end if I got to that opportunity. And then the, the last thing with alcohol is in you know, the last few years, there's been so much research about its relationship to health and as a health risk. I thought, well, you know, now it's, it's even, I'm, I'm really pretty good about not choosing to do things that are harmful to my future self. Like that's a value. I try really hard not to do something that is going to create unnecessary suffering for my future self. I try, it, I make plenty of mistakes, but that's a value that I hold for myself. So that's, that just sort of further cemented my desire. That's just, you know, it's not for me. I love that. I love that so much. Um, I want to follow up on something you said about like not wanting to take the edge off your anxiety Mm -hmm. in your life. What, what was the thought process behind 
or what maybe even are the benefits that you see to experiencing your anxiety rather than numbing? Yeah, I don't know if there's, so the one I first got expo- uh, introduced to this idea again, when I was in my early twenties through mindfulness, because, you know, I also, I have pain. It's funny. I never thought to drink to make the pain go away. I don't know if that works, but uh, a lot pain medications didn't work. <laughs> um, but so I have a lot of experience with like things going on internally that I don't like and that I can't control. Um, and I never found anything that was supposed to control them that actually helped. So when I was introduced to mindfulness and also through the practice of yoga, I got, I got better able to tolerate inner sensations and not immediately try to escape them. I mean, that's like Mm. essentially what you do when you meditate, but I especially found it in yoga, this idea that you could stay in a pose that's either hard and uncomfortable or just like a a deep stretch and uncomfortable and just breathe with it. And, you know, so discovering this 20 years ago was kind of a revelation for me that I could choose to tolerate discomfort in the service of something that was creating positive change, which is what I, you know, believed about meditation or yoga. And, um, but the other thing that happened with both of those practices is there's something about meditation and yoga that for me, I found it really hard to practice denial. And it was so interesting. Like I would go to do something that I might later regret and in doing it, all of a sudden I would be like being be able to transport myself to that moment when I would regret it. And it, I, I got that whole like, pretend you don't know that or pretend it's not true. Denial was hard. It was harder to be dishonest uh, to myself or to, I just, it was such an interesting thing. So I feel like part of deciding not to take the edge off anxiety too, part of it was about being able to not be in denial about the costs of trying to avoid anxiety. Mm. And the biggest example for me was I had a fear of flying and I wasn't flying and I hadn't seen certain family members in a couple of years. And I said no to all sorts of interesting opportunities. And I was having nightmares about flying, even though I wasn't flying and just was flying was taking up a lot of space in my head, considering I wasn't getting any of the benefits of flying, just the, the worrying and the fear and the lack the disconnection. So I decided that that like that, that choosing to avoid the anxiety I felt around flying was my biggest point of denial. That as a teacher and as a human being, I said I had certain values and I felt like that was the point, that was the part of my life where I was not acting the way I was trying to help other people act in their own lives in terms of my work in psychology or in mindfulness. So uh, that, that was sort of the context to not take the edge off anxiety because the first thing people tell you to do when you start doing something like flying is take drugs yeah. or drink on the airplane. I got, I, people were literally handing me pills. I'm like, get that away from me. I don't want that as an option. Yeah. Uh, that I didn't want to be in a vulnerable place and have that as an option. Um, and so that, again, that's sort of like where the, so the benefits of not taking the edge off it's not like a benefit, like flowers are blooming out of it. It's that it's consistent with, with how I want to be in the world. And that's the benefit of it is I want to be present and I want to be able to make conscious decisions. And I want to be fully present for moments that matter, even if anxiety is part of that. So that I don't need something to take the edge off in a situation where 
I can't, where it's not possible or it's not helpful. I wanna know how to stand in my anxiety and say something hard or show up and, or help someone, you know? I don't wanna be out of the moment and able to do that. And uh, the other benefit I'll say is that um, there's a story that I, I've told a few times, I think how to tell this <laughs> the fastest way possible, but I'll just, I'll get to the end of it, skip to the end. I was on a flight from Newark to California and it was a flight I really hadn't wanted to get on because they were predicting terrible turbulence and the pilot was like, like, oh, it's gonna be awful, <laughs> like strap up. I'm like, ah, okay, so that's not the kind of flight I want. But then I'm like working myself through it. You know, I, I knew it was gonna be a bad flight. I got on the plane anyways. I'm just like, this is it. This is what's happening. And you chose to be on here, but I'm not like happy about it. And then in the middle of that flight, you know, we've had all sorts of uh, uncomfortable turbulence and my fear is, is part of that. I get an email from somebody who read The Upside of Stress. And the, sub the subject of the email was, I read your book to my therapist and now I'm flying for the first time in years. And she literally was emailing me from a plane. And she was talking about how, like me, she'd been through this whole thing with flying and feeling ashamed of that fear and not being able to see family because of it. And she was on her way to see family for the first time in years because she had been moved by my talking about my fear and how I chose to deal with it and to choose what was meaningful over avoiding that fear. And so that was the benefit, right? Like that is the benefit. And that's the benefit of, of all the stuff we're talking about in terms of choosing your mindset is when you choose these things, you say the, way, the stance I'm gonna to take towards stress is I'm going to make meaning out of it. I'm going to be honest about it in order to make other people feel less alone. I'm going to embrace the energy and, and pretend it's courage and see what happens. Like when you do all of those things, it opens up the possibility of this kind of feedback from the world that for me strengthens my sense of, of self in a really positive way. Like I could be in that moment on a plane, not loving it, but practicing courage. And that in that moment, I would get an email from somebody I, who the only way I knew, I knew because I had chosen to be honest about my fear and try to help other people with it too. And that it was like, like that's, you know, so. that's just, that's a great, great story. And I love how you said that, like choose what's meaningful over avoiding, you know, fear. And I mean, if you look at drinking as a whole <clears throat> in my life, it, I have times where I was like, like my, my son's third birthday party. I just missed that precious, meaningful moment because, and, you know, I remember, you know, the saying of, well, it must've been fun. I don't even remember it. Right. And, and things like that. So that's just really great. Um, this has been absolutely amazing. Where can people find all about you? What is your, your website? And I know you have the joy of movement, the willpower experiment, the upside of stress, highly recommend everything you have ever written. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, um, you can find me, my website is kellymcgonigal.com. Um, but I'll, I'll give one other like little tip. Great. So I just released, uh, this eight minute workout video through the New York times. It's called the joy workout. And if anyone is looking for a way to like, just experience a little bit of me, that's different from listening to me talk about psychology, we designed this, um, this short workout that is based on the idea that 
around the world in, in different cultures, human beings move their bodies in certain ways when they are happy, when they get good news, when they win, when they see someone they haven't seen in a while and they're reuniting with them. Like we just tend to move our bodies in, in very joyful ways. We jump up and down, we throw our arms in the air, we take up space. And so I just designed a workout that puts you through the movements of joy, the, like the universal movements of joy with happy music in the background. And research suggests that this is a really great way to tap into joy. People tend to feel better after oh they gosh. move their bodies in joyful ways. So um, you can check that out. It's called the Joy Workout. I cannot wait to do that. That sounds absolutely amazing. I love that so much. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This has just been great. Thank you. Here's a question I get asked often. Annie, do you think your science-backed, grace-led approach to alcohol could work for other things like nicotine? People have asked me this question for years, and the answer is a resounding yes. And finally, there's a book for that. William Porter, the author of Alcohol Explained, and I have joined forces to bring you This Naked Mind Nicotine. We've combined our proven habit-breaking systems that help thousands overcome alcohol without willpower, without pain, without missing out, to help people quit smoking and vaping the same way without the pain. So start your no-nicotine journey today by pre-ordering This Naked Mind Nicotine at thisnakedmindnicotine.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today. Thank you.